Amen. Well, friends, as I read my Bible, the goal of God in this present evil age is to rescue a segment of fallen humanity, fallen men and women, to rescue them, gather them into local communities called churches, to be part of that great company of redeemed people who will be a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. This new society will coexist alongside the rest of humanity, which the New Testament calls the world, until, as Jesus says in the parable of the tares and the good seed, he, the Son of Man, will send forth his angels to gather the one group and throw them into a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, while the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Friends, most of us here are called by the grace of God to be part of that new society, the society of the redeemed, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, we have unspeakably wonderful privileges that the rest of society does not have. Jesus said that he has given us an abundant life. We have been reconnected to the God who made us for himself. We have been restored to the purpose for which we have been made. And that is to know, to enjoy, to serve, and to glorify God now and forever. And one of the activities that points to this restored fellowship that we have with God is prayer. Now, as the reconciled people of God, we can talk to the infinite, eternal God, knowing that he hears us and he will answer us. Prayer is one of our great privileges, something that we are given to do, which the world is not privileged to do. And so no wonder at some point in his ministry, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And we, as modern-day disciples, do well to ask the same question. Lord, teach us to pray. And so for these weeks, we've been exploring answers to that question from the Word of God. We are trying to answer the question, why should we pray? A couple messages on the vital importance of prayer. When should we pray? What should we pray? And we've been focused on how we should pray, and I've begun to answer that question. First, we said we are to pray bringing arguments to God in prayer. Arguments that glorify and honor him. Arguments based on God's perfections, based on his zeal for his glory and praise, based on his promises, based on what he has done in the past, based on him being a God of pity. We're to bring arguments to God that honor him. That's how we're to pray. Last week, we saw that we are to pray passionately. And we saw that some of the words in the New Testament that are used to describe the prayers of the saints are these. We're to pray fervently. We're to pray most earnestly. We're to pray striving, that Greek word agonizomai, like an athlete striving. That's to characterize our praying. When we pray for the lost, like Paul did for his fellow countrymen, great grief and unceasing sorrow. Another word is crying out. We're to cry out to God. And another word was beg. Now, this morning, I want to bring three more ways that we are to pray to God. And first, we are to pray biblically according to the word and will of God. You see, prayer is not contending with God, trying to get God to do something that is against his will. Prayer is not a battle of the wills. 
If it were, it would be both futile and foolish. For us to pit our little puny wills against the will of Almighty God would be futile. In a battle of wills, he would win. So it's futile to contend with God, and it's also foolish. Foolish in the full-orbed proverbial sense, where the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool is a wicked person. To ask of God and want to demand of God something that he has not willed and desired would be wicked. It would be going contrary to the will of God. That's what got the angel thrown out of heaven to become the devil because he wanted something for himself that God didn't want for him. He wanted to be like God. That's what got our first parents kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they wanted for themselves a certain knowledge that God did not want for them. No, prayer is not contending with the will of God. It's affirming the will of God. It's seeking to bring our wills into alignment with the will of God. And how do we do that? Well, listen to a couple of scriptures. Jesus in John chapter 15, you need not turn there. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see the connection. Your prayers will be answered if you ask with, as a result of my words abiding in you. Couple that with 1 John 5.14, where John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here we can bring the word of God and the will of God together. How? Because the will of God is known by us from the word of God. So your prayers will be heard if the word of Christ is dwelling richly in you, or if his words are abiding in you, then you will be asking God according to his will. Because the word of God reveals the will of God. So what is it then to pray biblically? It's to read and study the scriptures and to discern from the scriptures what the will of God is, what the decreed will of God is, but also what the moral or perceptive will of God is. What what do you want, Lord? What is your will? And then our prayers are breathing back to God as our prayer what God has expressed as his desire. Does that make sense? How do we do that? Well, one way is you can actually pray the very words of the biblical prayers and apply them to yourselves. That's why in our prayer meetings, I try to open with a psalm, and we we pray back the psalm to God, and it's a good exercise if you want to read through the psalms and pray through the psalms and personalize them. Take the very words of the psalmist and make them your words applied to you That's one way to pray the word of God, pray actual words of God, or to take the actual prayers of the New Testament and pray those words with application to yourself. But another way is to take what the scripture says and what God reveals as his will for his people and pray accordingly. And let me give you a bunch of examples. I've told you that for years now, I've tried to begin my prayers for everyone in the language of Paul in Philippians 1.3, where he says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Before I pray for any of you, and I pray for virtually all of you here, it's my job as a pastor, but it's also my privilege, but um, unless I don't know you. Um, and I, I start by, by thanking God for you, because Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's a good thing to do, isn't it? To be, before you pray for somebody, thank God for them. 
I pray for single people who desire to be married. How? I pray Genesis 2.18. God, you said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Lord, would you give this man, this woman, a helper suitable? I pray for husbands. Husbands, Lord, help him to love his wife as Christ loves the church. As I prayed this morning, to be a provider, a protector, a leader, a lover, a nourisher, a cherisher. I pray for wives. Lord, help them to submit to their husbands, as your word says, and to respect them. I pray for you as parents. Father, help them to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I pray for you children. Help them to obey their parents in the Lord, because that is right. If someone lacks discipline, you might pray 1 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, the, the athletic term, gymnazo, gymnastics. Lord, help them to discipline themselves because it's the only way to be godly. If people are showing love, but it's undiscerning love, I, you might pray Philippians 1, 9. Lord, may, the, may your love, Paul says, may your love abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Help them to love, but love with discernment. If a person lacks self-control, you might pray, Lord, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Lord, the Spirit is within them. Give them self-control. If you're praying for someone who has an independent spirit and they make decisions on their own and they don't take counsel, you might pray something like the Proverbs, Lord, without consultation, prayers are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound words. Lord, help this person not to be so independent, but help them to learn how to take counsel with other people because they're in his safety, they're in his victory. For a proud person, First Peter 5, 5, Lord, you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Help them to humble themselves so that they might have grace. For a, a Christian struggling with assurance, Lord, please help them in light of Philippians 1, 6 to know that you are at work in them, um, or rather that you who began a good work in them will, will perform it until the day of the Lord Jesus. Help them to understand what you mean when you say of your sheep, they will never perish. Lord, give them assurance. For a person who talks too much, Proverbs 10, 19, Lord, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Lord, help them to learn to restrain their lips and to listen better, quick to hear, slow to speak. So for someone who needs work, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Lord, you said that if we don't provide for our own, that we're worse than an unbeliever. Help this one to have work because the, he wants to work so he can provide for his family according to your word. For the lost, we're told in Acts 16, 14, that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things. Lord, with this unbeliever, open their heart. Do what only you can do. Open their heart to respond to the gospel. For preachers, as Paul says, pray for me, for my boldness, for my clarity. For someone who has too high a view of themselves, I sometimes pray, Lord, Romans 12, 3, help them not to think more highly of themselves than they ought, but to have sober judgment. For a husband, you know, one of the things I prayed in recent years for a man's moral purity, in Ezekiel 24, God refers to Ezekiel's wife as the desire of his eyes. One of the things I pray for myself as a man and for many of you men, Lord, will you make his wife the soul 
desire of his eyes. And no other woman. If we lack wisdom, let him ask God, Lord, our brother Merv needs wisdom regarding decisions regarding Twinbrook, right? Lord, you promise if, you, if we ask for wisdom, you'll give it. Just some samples, brothers. We, we want to pray the word of God. Now, let me give you some of the blessings and benefits of praying according to the revealed will of God in his word. First of all, it will make you more confident in your praying because you'll be praying what you know is the will of God because it's the very words of God. You'll pray with more boldness. You'll pray with greater fervency because you're asking according to what God reveals to be his will. It will make your prayer time more interesting rather than just repeating the same well-worn phrases, Lord bless so-and-so, Lord bless so-and-so, Lord bless so-and-so. Your prayers will be more interesting. You might take more time in prayer because it takes a little bit more time to pray those scriptures rather than just say, Lord bless so-and-so, right? It will help you to learn scripture in a practical way and how to apply scripture to the practical needs of your brothers and sisters. It will deepen your fellowship with brothers and sisters because you will listen to discern what their needs are so you can pray specifically for them. You'll pay more attention to unbelievers to try to figure out what seem to be the barriers to their coming to you, Lord. And I pray against them. And it will be an encouragement to your faith in that you will see answers to specific prayers. Isn't that an encouragement? When you ask specifically and God answers specifically, wow, that's a great encouragement to our faith. And so we are to pray biblically according to the word and will of God. And then next we are to pray humbly with a dependent and penitent heart. You are aware that the greatest theme in the universe is the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's why the glory of God and the enjoyment of God is the chief end of man. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You know, the glory of God is actually more important than life itself. It was to Paul. Paul could say in Philippians, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. More important to Paul than whether he lives or dies is that God be glorified. Glory of God is a big thing. And consistent with God's love for his own glory is his hatred of pride angelic pride and human pride. It was pride that got the angel kicked out of heaven who became the devil. He would be like God. It was pride in the hearts of our first parents that cast them out of paradise because they exalted their own wisdom and understanding above that of God. And we read this grand statement in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so, consistent with God's love for his own glory and his hatred of human pride, when God framed a way of salvation, it was calculated to bring glory to him 
and not to us, right? And that's why salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not the result of human effort and performance so that we have nothing to boast of when it comes to salvation, only to boast in him. Now, prayer is the language of the creature man to the all-glorious creator God. So the very nature of things, by the very nature of things, prayer must be brought to God in a spirit of humility. First of all, we need to come humbly before God in prayer because of our creaturehood. We are dependent created ones, and God is the all-sufficient creator and sustainer and provider. David could say, as he was collecting things, he wasn't allowed to build the temple himself, his son Solomon was, but he was allowed to gather things for the building of the temple. And when he did, he makes this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, for all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Lord, we've only given to you what came from you in the first place. The counterpart in the New Testament is when Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you haven't received? If you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Everything you have, materially, spiritually, has been given to you. And there's no grounds for boasting in yourself. One of the postures in prayer indicates the humility with which we come to God in prayer. Kneeling is is one of the postures with which we come to God in prayer. In Acts 9, Peter knelt down and prayed. In Acts 20, Paul knelt down and prayed with them. In Nehemiah 8, we read, All the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Prayer is the language of humble dependence and need. We are asking for what we do not have and can only receive from God. And God is determined to keep his children in a mode of dependence. In the Gospels, in John 6, with 5,000 people plus who are hungry, Jesus says to his disciples in John 6, 5, he says, um, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Disciples, what are you you going to do to feed these people? Why did he do that? Because he wanted to show them they didn't have the resources to feed the people. And then he turns around and miraculously feeds 5,000 plus people with a few loaves and fish. But he shows them, you don't have the resources. I do, so that they depend on him. In another gospel narrative in Luke 5, Jesus is dealing with his disciples who are professional fishermen, and he waits until they work hard all night and they catch nothing. We read in Luke 5, 4 to 6, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. Now, why did Peter wait until they had fished all night and caught nothing? 
so that they would not attribute that catch to their own resources, their own ability. It's because we are professional fishermen. We have this acumen. We understand how to handle the nets and how to maneuver the boat, and we know where the fish are. They worked all night as professional fishermen and caught nothing. Jesus said, lower the net here, and their net is full of fish. Why did he do that? To show them that you are dependent on me. You are the needy one. And I am the one who has all the resources that you need. And it reinforces that when we come to God in prayer, we come with humility and a sense of dependency. You know, the first prayer that God hears from anyone is the prayer of the penitent in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm going to look at that parable for a minute. Beginning at verse 9 of Luke 18. And we'll see a contrast here, Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's this Pharisee, and he's praying. But his prayer is filled with a sense of his own performance, his own accomplishment. He sees himself as superior to others. He deserves from God. He's looking with contempt on others, especially this tax collector. He's sitting on his high perch of moral and spiritual superiority. And what does God think of his prayer? He's repulsed by it. He resists the proud. He has no regard for that proud prayer of the Pharisee, but then then you have this other man, a tax collector. Friends, he is on the lowest rung of the social ladder. He is on the bottom of the totem pole so far as social status. He's a tax collector. They were traitors. They were collaborators with the hated Roman oppressors who had possessed their land. Their testimony was worth nothing in a court of law. They were nobodies in the eyes of the Jews. But here's a man who's praying, but he's not comparing himself favorably to others. Apparently, he's caught enough of a glimpse of the awesome holiness of God that he's seeing himself by comparison. And like Isaiah of old, he's seeing himself as undone. And he's too ashamed to even lift up his sinful eyes to heaven. He hangs his head ashamed before God, but he offers in his prayer the magic word. Mercy. God be merciful to me, the sinner. None of the blame shifting that we saw in the garden, the woman you gave me, well, well, the serpent. None of the blame shifting that we see in Aaron, Moses' brother, well, the people threw in this gold and out came a calf. I don't know how. None of that blame shifting. And he even says there's a definite article be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not just a sinner, but Lord, I'm the sinner. I'm object A here. I'm focusing on myself. I don't know about everybody else, but I am the sinner, Lord, and I need mercy. 
That's a humble confession of sinnerhood. And this man, it says, went down to his house justified. And friends, justification is the greatest blessing we can receive this side of heaven. Justification means that you have been declared righteous in the sight of God with the righteous of another, even Jesus Christ. As your sin has been laid upon Jesus and his perfect goodness has been credited to you, Therefore, being justified by faith, Paul says in Romans, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this humble penitent receives the greatest blessing possible this side of heaven. He goes down to his house justified. And so in arguing for the fact that we need to come humbly with dependence and penitence before God in prayer, let me say to any of you who may not be a believer, this is what must happen to you. At some point, you must get to the point where you're not looking at others and saying, well, I'm doing pretty well compared to this person. I'm not as bad as this person or that person. You need to take your eyes off other people against whom you look favor favorably in your own eyes, and you need to get a look at God and his holiness, get a look at Jesus and his perfection, and realize that you are a sinner who has violated God. You've turned to your own way, and you need to give up on your self-salvation and pride. You need to empty yourself of a sense of your own goodness or your own good enoughness and put your faith solely and squarely in Jesus and say that magic word, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And oh, God will open up the heavens and come down because he responds to that cry for mercy. But you know, we're Christians and we have come to God. But as Christians, we continue to sin. Now, there has been a change. We are no longer dominated by sin. A big change has taken place. So that John can say in 1 John, the ones born of God do not sin. Whoa, what does that mean? Well, if you understand in the Greek, it's the present tense. And what he means is they do not habitually continue in sin as a way of life. Paul says in Romans 6, 6, the old man has been crucified with him. The body of sin might be done away with that. We should no longer be slaves to sin. So a massive change has taken place in your life, Christian. You're, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer defined by sin. You're no, no longer wallowing in sin. But we are all still sinners, right? And so we need to come to God humbly in prayer, not only because of our creaturehood, but we need to come because of our Sinnerhood. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Being foremost am I. And one commentator, Albert Barnes, writes this of Paul. He was always ready in all circles and in all places to admit to its fullest extent, the fact that he was a sinner. He does not merely say that he had been a sinner of most aggravated character, but he speaks of it as something that always pertained to him, of whom I am chief, an acknowledgement that we are sinners, that we are sinners, an acknowledgement that we are sinners is not inconsistent with evidence of piety and with high attainments in it. The most eminent Christian has the deepest sense of the depravity of his own heart 
and of the evil of his past life. Let me repeat that because I'm going to come back to it. The most eminent Christian has the deepest sense of the depravity of his own heart and of the evil of his past life. William Hendrickson writes regarding Paul's statement, Paul writes am and not was. This indicates that even now, years after his conversion, he deeply regrets his past. Besides, even a fully pardoned sinner is a sinner. What is the implication of that for our lives? It means that when we come to God in prayer, we come not only in the humility of our creaturehood and dependence, but we come in humility because we are sinners in constant need of cleansing. John tells us if anyone says he has not sinned, he makes God a liar. And so we come with penitent hearts. We come with confession on our lips, but confident that God promises if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David came in Psalm 51, that prayer of penitence, and he says at the end, a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. So in prayer, we come to the Lord conscious of our sins and our remaining sinfulness. And we say, Lord, search me and know me and see what hurtful way there is in me. We come confessing, which means agreeing with God about our sin. We come with a broken and contrite heart. We come grieving over our sins. Blessed are they that mourn. So how do we come to God in prayer this morning? We come praying biblically. We come praying humbly as dependent creatures and as sinners in need of forgiveness. But finally, we come to pray joyfully and boldly as a forgiven sinner. Coming back to the statement made by Albert Barnes, that the most eminent Christian has the deepest sense of the depravity of his own heart. I won't ask for a show of hands, but do you agree with that? The most eminent Christian has the deepest sense of the depravity of his own heart. I think it's a true statement. But does that mean that therefore the most eminent or accomplished or mature Christians are the most depressed and downcast and gloomy? You would think that these things go together. The more conscious I am of my sin, the more depressed I am, the more downcast I am. So shouldn't those who see their sin most clearly be most depressed and downcast and gloomy? The answer to that is no. And here's why. Because the more advanced in grace you are, the more mature you are, the clearer sight you have of the cross of Christ. Years ago, I saw, I was reading a booklet called The Gospel-Centered Life, and it gave an illustration. And on the one hand, it says that as we grow, we see more and more of the holiness of God. And so it drew a line upward. The more I read the word and grow as a Christian, the more I see God as holy. And then correspondingly, as I see more of God's holiness, I see more of my own sinfulness. And so he draws another line going down. I see more and more holiness in God. I see more and more sinfulness in me. But why doesn't that lead to depression and gloominess and downcast? Condition, because he drew in the middle the cross of Christ. 
And as we grow in grace, the cross, as it were, gets bigger because we see more and more our need for the cross of Jesus Christ and our appreciation of what Jesus did on the cross, our appreciation of the grace of God in Christ increases as well. So that as we see more of the holiness of God, more of the sinfulness of man, we don't become more gloomy, but we appreciate Jesus Christ all the more. This was Paul's experience. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He's not unaware of his past sin. And from other passages, he's aware of his current sins. But he's even more aware of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And so the same man who could say, I am still the chief of sinners, could also say in Philippians 1, For I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He's the same one who could say, Rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I say rejoice. The consciousness of his continued sinfulness did not erase his joy because of the overriding consciousness of the grace and mercy that was shown to him in Jesus Christ. And Paul was not one who was crippled by his past sins. He was a murderer of Christians. He was a blasphemer. His past sins did not cripple him. His ongoing sinfulness did not cripple him, but he was living a joyful, victorious Christian life, not because he was unaware of his sin, not because he was unaware of God's great holiness, but he was so overridingly aware of the grace of God shown to him in Jesus Christ. And that note of joy is unmistakable in the Psalms. Sing for joy, O you righteous ones. 47.1, O clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy, for the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. 51.8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Psalm 63.7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. So, brothers and sisters, even though we are to come humbly to God in our creaturely dependence, in our continuing sinfulness, we may and should come to God prayerfully, in prayer, joyfully and boldly, because in Jesus Christ we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are justified, we are accepted, we are beloved, we are welcomed, and his throne has become to us a throne of grace. So be a humble and penitent Christian for sure, but also be a Christian who rejoices in the forgiving and cleansing mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us in our praying to pray according to your word. Help us to pray with a sense of our creaturely dependency and our continuing sinfulness and to come humbly before you. But also, Lord, help us to come joyfully and boldly because through your Son, Jesus Christ, we are completely forgiven, welcomed by you, loved by you, and we thank you 
for that in Jesus' name.